Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 um, to 31. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That's that September baby thing right there. Um, (laughs) Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I love you, and um, truly we come here to think about you to attune our our very hearts and our very beings to you. And um, I just pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning on our spiritual journey, that we might be open um, to hear the still, small voice tell us um, that we were created by you with meaning and purpose and that you love us deeply. And so through this uh, preaching of this word right now, I pray that um, we might be reminded of that that we might be filled up with that as we go into our week, that we might be um, full of your grace and full of your truth, God. Help us not leave here the same way we came in, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're getting into our fall teaching series, this idea of good news gospel. And what we're really seeking to do is to say, what is the heart of the Christian faith? And what, what I came and did two, two weeks ago is to just ask this question, what is the gospel? This, this sort of overly, maybe simplistic, but maybe sometimes overly complicated idea of this gospel, this good news. And what I came two weeks ago and just sort of proposed is, what if the gospel has chapters to it? And this is a way of understanding it, and this is actually the frame to our series. And so um, the chapters of the gospel here would be creation, right? And so um, Brandon last week and today, I'll be talking about this idea of creation, that we're created by God to create, and we're created in God's image. And then we'll get into, starting next week, um, the fall. What, what is um, the implications of Genesis chapter 3 on our lives, on our world, um, in, in our faith, that sin entered the world through disobedience? And then we'll get into this idea of redemption. What makes things right in the world? What could rescue us And how can there be life through the person of Jesus? And then uh, we'll finish um, talking about the restoration. What is is the renewal of all things? What is God promising to do in the end? And in the meantime, how do we join in? And even as as I'm thinking about each of these things, this is not only a way of understanding um, maybe from like a theological perspective, um, like who God is, his nature, and his character, but it's also a way of understanding the world in which we live. 
and, and, and how we go about our, our day-to-day. And so that's going to be sort of our, our structure. And it's, it's sort of a, a, a spectrum because we don't want to have a myopic approach. We don't want to zoom in so closely um, to parts of this gospel story that we miss it. Right? I think that um, maybe you've been to a church that's like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. It's like so focused on this idea. That, that may be true, right? That, I believe that is true. But what is the full breadth of this? So it's sort of like this. Um, my wife and I's first date, we went to this art museum, the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City. And so she grew up learning about painting, and she's a painter herself. And so she, she walks me to the section. I think she left. This is funny. Um, she, she walks me to the section she knows best, the impressionist section. And so this is our first date. She walks me over to it, and she's like, um, the 19th century Impressionist movement was a pushback against the hyperrealism of photography. And I was like entering her classroom, right? And I'm just not going to lie at that point. Like, it was very attractive. Um, I was falling in love, and whatever she had planned was working in that moment. And so then she says, do you want to like, know how to actually look at this? And I'm like, well, obviously. And she says, so here's what you do is you stand really, really close to the painting, like a foot or so away. And so I like walk up. I think it was a Monet. I like standing right up. And she says, what do you see? And I was like, I'm going to fail this. Like lines, colors, blobs, you know, like I don't know. And she says, okay, good. Now take four or five steps back. What do you see now? And so I, I, I took steps back. And she says, now squint your eyes a little bit. Squinted my eyes. And she was like, did it come into focus? I was like, it did. And she was like, that's the beauty of Impressionist painting. You get the larger perspective. I'm telling a story about you. Um, (laughs) And this is exactly um, my hope for this series, is that actually we would zoom out. And at points, we'll we'll hone in, right? We'll we'll come from 30,000 feet and we'll come down um, to 3,000 feet. There are moments for that. But how do we first zoom out to, to not just see the parts of the story, but to take in the whole of what God has done in human history, and, and, and is doing, but wants to do in the future, the whole story. And with that, one really, really important component. I believe, I believe with everything in my being that God still speaks today, right? I think when we come to church, we expect wisdom from the past, right? And that will shape our present. I believe that happens, but I also believe that by the Holy Spirit, God can actually do a work here and now in your life today. And so as we go through each of these creation, fall, redemption, re- restoration, it's going to impact your day-to-day. And I hope that you're seeing that as we go through. And I, I think um, my attempt each week will also be to, to like try to get nudge us in that direction. So um, here's how I want to look at today's passion, passage talking about creation. I want to talk about what it means to be created in the image of something, particularly God. What are the implications of the Imago Dei? And then I'll finish with this very simple thing, like, what were we created for? Um, And so that will be sort of our path for today. So let's begin in verse 26. I want to read this again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the opening of the Bible, creation, right? You're getting a lot of movement. You're getting um, God creating. And it's very um, visual, right, about about what is happening. And it's easy to sort of miss this one line that has massive implications about God himself. It says, and I hope you caught this, 
There's plural, right? Then God, singular, I guess, then says, let us make mankind in our image. And you're like, whoa, 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 what is happening? In the very first chapter of the Bible, and I'm so glad Brandon um, hit on this last week, the Trinity is present. One of the most foundational questions um, in the Christian faith is the question, who is God? And the Christian answer to who is God is God is Trinity, right? Christians are people who believe that God is a triune God, God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit. And God is eternally existent in three persons. God has always existed, like Brandon shared last week. God is perfect. God is lacking in nothing. God is all-knowing. He's always present. And there's an embodied form of him in the person of Jesus. And so um, maybe one way to say it would be like, the, the Father is God um, for us. Jesus is God with us. And the Holy Spirit is God inside of us. And according to the scriptures, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all doing this work of what the scriptures say is like glorifying one another. Here's what it says in John chapter 17. Actually, Jesus says this. It says, I have brought you glory. Jesus is saying this to the Father on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so you see that pre-existence and you see um, two persons pointing at each other, right? Look at me, right? Look over at me. Glorify me. I'm honoring you, right? I'm, 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 I'm giving reverence to you. There's a sort of mutuality there, right? But the Holy Spirit is in on this well. Just two chapters earlier, Jesus says this, when the advocate, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, what does the Holy Spirit do? Testify about me. And so the Holy Spirit is reminding us of the person of Jesus. Um, and what's happening here is that God is actually in this perfect divine community within the Trinity. Um, I thought a lot about this this week. I was like, water, ice, vapor, how do we do all this? I thought this might be better. Um, I thought Peter Parker could maybe uh, solve my problems. We got the, there it is. <laughs> okay, so like this, this is sort of the idea each person, and I know this is theological, so hang with me, all right? I know you feel like maybe you're in a classroom right now. That's why I got to put this picture in here. Um, each member of the Trinity is pointing to the other, elevating the other. They're in a perfect community with one another. They're having deference to one another. And so God's, I don't even, I, this is such a mystery. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. When you start thinking about things like this, your mind just goes, I don't know anymore, right? And, and, and it's because we, we want to have, um, have, like, confidence in what we're saying. But, like, God is mystery. And so I'm trying my best is what I'm saying here. But, but God's inner life, like, God's inner life is overflowing with love for the other, and it's just mind-boggling to think of this. God is, is all-knowing and all-sufficient and all these things that we just said. But guess what? God fills up with love and just starts pointing at the other within the Godhead. Regard for others. Consideration for others. Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you think me not irreverent, a kind of dance. 
right? The Godhead is working inside of the Godhead to point to each other. Meaning what? Meaning God is sufficient in himself. God is not lonely. God is not up in heaven thinking, well, you know what? I'm a little bit bored up here, you know? Like, I'm, t- I'm kind of tired of you two. We, we should, you know, create some humans. That's not it at all. Our triune God is actually in perfect relationship and community within the Godhead. And you might be saying, okay, well, like, that's, that's a really great idea, but like, wh- what does it mean? Why, why does it matter? What is being modeled here? Um, Pastor Tim Keller has said this so, so well. He said that the Trinity in its essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is characterized, and I, this is the, the phrase I want you to take home today, the, the Trinity in its essence is characterized by mutually self-giving love. Mutually self-giving love. So every party that enters into the relationship says, you first, right? It's, mu- it's mutual for everyone. You first, right? I draw reverence for you. I consider you first. I I defer to you. I find my deepest joy in you. And what this begins to be is a pushback against the hyper-individualism of our time. On the first chapter of the Bible, the the scriptures are teaching us humility. The, The first pages of the Bible are teaching us how to actually put other people before ourself. We, we can be so selfish. I'll say it this way. I can be so selfish, self-regarding, self-absorbed, self-interested, self-serving, self-seeking. And, and, it, and it's a little hard to hear, but some of us need to hear that we've actually been acting like we're the center of the universe into which everything else orbits. And please don't mistake judgment for conviction here. I'm hearing this too, right? But a self-absorbed person... Um, may be drawn into relationship with others. They may even fall in love. But what happens when the self is the end? What happens when the, the, the self is like the, the telos into which one lives, like um, the, the goal and the, the, the means, right? So there, there'll be a commitment up to a certain point. But what happens when I get pushed back, right? It's easy to leave that relationship, right? What happens when, um, when I'm trying to do something and I have an individual self-interest, and something is impeding on that. I just officiated a wedding uh, last week for these two in the back right here, which we're just so, so excited about. By the way, this is commitment. You get married on a Saturday. It was last Saturday, but you're here. If you would have been here last Sunday, you know, that would have been, that would have been extra special, you know. But in this ceremony... I don't even know how I worked this into this ceremony, but thinking about um, an egocentric vision of one party walking into a marriage relationship, right? Remember, remember the phrase, phrase mutually self-giving love, right? And so in their, in their ceremony, I actually shared like um, a lot of people walk into a relationship and they say, I'm here, I'm committed to this, I'm going to be a part of this, as long as it's fulfilling and self-actualizing for me, as long as it benefits me. But that doesn't work in a marriage relationship. By, by the very definition, because in a marriage relationship, what you're committing to is you first, right? It's, it's sort of other-centric, 
right? And this is, this is in one sense why a lot of relationships in our time blow up. And, and you know, marriage is sort of a, a huge example of that, but it's like, what about other relationships? What about with our family and with our friends? What if we walk into a relationship and we think of that mutually self-giving love and we would say, you know what? You first. Your needs are more important than mine. What you want is more important than what I want to do. My life for yours. Relationships would be so different in that sense. We'll come back to this at the end. So God says this, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Um, and so in the, that, that word image there um, in the Latin is the imago Dei. It's a really beautiful way to say the, the image of God. And um, again, this is a part of that mystery, right? In creating humanity, God put inside of us a sort of a likeness about us from him. Um, there are passages that are very beautiful in the Psalms. Um, um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork. Um, uh, some translations say workmanship or masterpiece. It says created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Um, we are God's handiwork. Uh, in the Greek, uh, the Greek word is poema, right? Um, it, 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 it's where we get our word poem from. It says, we are God's poem. By the way, if you're looking for a baby name, poema, like that's beautiful. It's, you just slide my credit right there, you know. Um, we are God's poem, right? What is it saying? It's saying you and I are the artistic expression of a creative and loving God, right? And the claim is, um, in this verse, is that you're not the product of chance. You're not the product of something random, but you are knit together, that you're intentionally made, that you're crafted with care. And some of us need to like, some of us need to hear this and internalize it. Like, I'm not a mistake, right? I'm not an accident, but there's purpose and meaning in how God created um, me. I won't go too deep here, but the, um, the original readers of the Bible, um, this would have been, for them, particularly um, a moment of hope. Um, the book of Genesis, the original readers were, were likely um, those um, who were Jewish men, Israelite men and women, uh, who were stuck in exile in foreign lands, sort of like modern-day immigrants or refugees ripped from their context. And in these ancient cultures, when they would come to them, there would be um, creation myths floating around about the, the origins of them as a people and of the universe. And one of them in, in, in Babylonian culture, a uh, Babylonian creation myth, um, was called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, um, uh, people were slave labor for the gods. And so essentially, they were, uh, people were created out of necessity. Right? The, the gods needed the people to pray, to fuel their immortality. It was just wild. But this would actually be a common story that people would hear is, you need to pray so that the gods could be fueled like, and, and, and um, exist because of you. And in Genesis 1, we find that our God is completely different. That the God of the cosmos doesn't create out of need for us, but he creates out of love. Right? If you think about it this way, um, God existed from the very beginning in deference the, the, the Godhead was perfect community. God doesn't need to create. He has everything in and of himself in community. And so why does he create? Not out of need, but because he wants to joyfully give love to his people. And so what are the implications then of this idea of the Imago Dei? And I would say 
Um, first, it's that you and I have an inherent dignity about us, right? Since God creates out of um, sheer grace and unconditional love, each person, regardless of what they believe, how they behave, possesses a deep-seated dignity and worth for no other reason other than God created you. And it doesn't matter, that applies to every person you've ever met, every person you're on the street with, every person in your building, even the crazy neighbor you have, right? That applies to them as well. I was doing a lot of research about how we in our time value human life. And um, I came across um, something pretty terrible actually. Um, The value of a human life is actually really important um, in the financial and political and um, insurance industry, right? What is the statistical value of a human life? Um, And they say that it's used to quantify the the benefit of avoiding a loss of life and, and saving it, but it's still a little bit weird because it varies by country. And so in Australia, the value of a statistical life is actually set at 5.1 million. I was like, they're, they're balling out, you know, in Australia. Life is really pricey there, you know, I don't know. Russia drops to 2 million. In, in the U.S., um, the statistical um, value of life has been set by the EPA at 9.1 million, so it's very high. And the FDA says that life is worth 7.9 million. And I was reading this this week, and I'm like, I... Sure, I understand maybe, you know, what this would mean for an industry and how we value things, but how do you even get these numbers? How do you begin to quantify the value of a person? And I guess my answer is you don't. You just don't. Um, I don't know if you saw the story this week. I hesitate to even use it because it's it's so horrible, but I think it's a really good illustration of of how we often view others. Um, A Seattle police officer was overheard this week on his body cam footage um, commenting about a young woman um, who died after she was struck uh, crossing a crosswalk by another officer back in January. And in the video, you can go read the whole story because I'm going to take it out of context here. The officer is heard laughing and he says, they just need to write a check. How about $11,000? She's 26 anyway and she had limited value. And I think that in moments of thinking about what, what life is worth and whose life is worth more, I mean, th- even thinking about how they vary country by country, it's so good for us to start here, if we're going to talk about a good news gospel, to really believe that all people hold inherent worth, dignity, and value. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this, the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives man a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. There are no gradations in the image of God. Paul actually said something similar in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I read that this week and I thought, oh my gosh, what a message for our time. Jew or Greek, what is he saying? Race, slave nor free, class, male or female, gender. Where are we divided all the time? Race, class, and gender. And this isn't to say that those things don't matter or there's not a story behind them or we should ignore those things. That's not it. But he's saying, if you are in Christ, that is the primary identifier of who you are. And, and Christians are people who believe that other people have inherent 
dignity regardless of what they believe. Every person is created in the image of God, loved by him, and worthy of value and dignity for no other reason than he created them. And this is something I think that um, I love about our faith, but also something maybe that's gotten lost in our faith along the way. So important. Um, The other part of this, and I just want to hit on this really quick, we actually don't get to determine this for ourselves. And so maybe you're someone here today, and you wrestle with the idea of a self-worth. And so you would say, yeah, I, I look at other people and I think, wow, they, like, there, there's value there and they're excellent at their career field, but, but I don't know about me. I'll never forget when I graduated from college, um, a classmate of mine, um, he, he and I were both from Arizona, we went back to Arizona, um, and that, that period of graduating college and trying to figure out your career and you know, being 21, 22, 23, and like, it's just a lot of pressure. And he was going through um, a bout of anxiety and, and depression, um, suicidal ideation. And so he, he decided it was best to check himself into a hospital. Um, and I don't know, I'm not, I'm not here to say the, the chemical imbalance of his situation or whatever he was experiencing, but he actually called me and told me about it. Um, and I just thought, you know what, I'm actually in town. I'll just drive and come see you. So I go out and I just sat with him. Uh, we just graduated from college, and I just, I just sat there and listened to him, um, try to ask him some questions. And it just hit me at the end. Here's a friend of mine. He and I preached at a lot of the same churches in college. And so I just asked him, um, I wanted to understand if he believed this message that he preached. And so I said, you know, one of the things that we did, you know, you and I would preach salvation by grace through faith in the person of Jesus, life and hope in the person of Jesus. Like, that's what we would preach walking around, you know, these small towns in Kansas. And I said, when you were preaching that, did you believe that? He looked at me like I was the dumbest person. He was like, of of course, of course I believed that. And I just asked him in the end, I said, why can't you believe that for yourself then? And he just looked at me and said, I I don't know. But he really couldn't let that sort of internalized, struggling with that type of self-hatred. But what what if we would choose to believe that there is an inherent dignity about who we are? And, and we let that sort of rest on us. You're loved and accepted. I spent way too much time on that. Second point, we have an inherent t- dignity. Here's the second one, and I'll be very quick here. That you and I have the capacity to mirror, right? So let us make mankind in our image to what? Be like us, right? There's a sort of mirroring going on that there's a call on us very early in the scriptures to reflect outwardly the likeness and character of Jesus in, in terms of grace, in terms of mercy, in, ter- in terms of justice, in, in terms of righteousness. Um, I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He, he says, you've never met a normal person. Um, he says this, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Why? Because God actually made us to reflect him in that way, right? And this builds sort of on the inherent dignity. We also have a responsibility in our capacity to mirror. And so what does God say in verse 28, the next verse? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Gives us um, what's called the cultural mandate. So the question then becomes like, what, what were we created for? 
Because God actually, um, in this passage at least, it seems that he's put something inside of us, right? Worth, value, dignity, love. And then he, he actually tells us to begin doing things, right? And I know that um, you're here probably um, because you, you sort of have a sense in you that you were created to do something, that you were actually created to give yourself over to something, right? That um, Brandon says this all the time, that we're meaning-making creatures, right? We're trying to create meaning in our life. Or maybe that's what we're trying to uncover or discover, right? But bottom line, I think what we were created for is to receive love and to give love. That's like the baseline function. You can make your work about math and numbers and all this. At the end of the day, it's still about people. Why? Because you were created to receive love. I, I think that's the love of God. And then you're created to love God. Or maybe, maybe the better way to say it is you're actually created to love like God. You receive it and you give it. I think that you and I were made to center our very being on this triune God and when you do that, you find joy, you find fulfillment, you find the, the happiness that you're ultimately looking for. So how does this begin to set up this idea of good news gospel in the, in the, in the realm of creation? What are the ramifications of understanding the good news gospel? Let me wrap up by saying these two things. The first is this. God's very intention for your life was perfection right? So this is, we're Genesis chapter one and two. We're going to get to chapter three next week, but you and I were designed for a life of perfection. And so suffering, pain, evil, none of these things are actually God's intention or design. So when you and I face tragedy and we say, this is not right, that's exactly right. We're not made for that. We were not meant for that. And we need to remember in its very origins, those things are not God's will. And I think it's a really important way to understand suffering and evil in our world when you think, oh man, I have pain in my body. We weren't made for pain in our bodies. I have a relational tension with my family. I'm going through this strife in my marriage. All these things you'd say, you weren't actually made for this type of brokenness. And so it does feel unnatural to you and I. So that's the first one. God's very intention for your life was perfection. Number two is this. You were made to model this mutually self-giving love. And even as you hear that, don't you think, I want a relationship like that. I want a friendship like that. I want a marriage like that, that, that gives without expectation of anything in return, that is committed as I'm committed, that says, you know what, you're going to make mistakes, but I'm going to make mistakes, and we're in this for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. I'm still at your wedding somehow, you know? And, and I think that what that means is some of us need to, to evaluate how we're walking into some of our relationships. Right, I was reading um, 2 Corinthians this week, and Paul says, I'm poured out like a drink offering. And I know, and I know it's important. I mean, we talk about this all the time here. It's like rest and create space, and that's good. But also, we need to be walking into relationships ready to say, I'm ready to pour, be poured out like a drink offering. Don't say that on the first date. That'd be super weird. Um, but, but what would it look like to enter into a relationship and saying, not early on, not first date kind of stuff, Maybe, maybe third, fourth, fifth, sixth date, you're ready to say, I want to be in a relationship that gives to me like I give to it, right? And you can think about that in the marriage relationship, but don't you want friends like that too? That do the things they say, they show up because they'd say, you know what, I'm actually committed to a mutually self-giving friendship. 
I'm committed to a mutually self-giving love. And you know what that's going to mean? It's going to require a lot of forgiveness from you and I. It's going to require a lot of humility on our part. And so this is where I want to end today. Um, I'm, this passage is going to come up on the screen. And if you want to close your eyes, I'll try to talk louder than this music. Um, or you can, you can read it. It's Philippians 2, just 1 through 11. It's a little bit long, but it's basically everything I'm going to say in the end here, but better. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, what a passage, this, uh, this creation passage, this Philippians passage where um, we learn about your nature, who you are, the ways in which you're sufficient in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, thank you for modeling that. Thank you uh, for being a God who doesn't use us, but actually wants to give us love that we might be open to receiving it in this mysterious way that we can. So Father, I pray, I pray for those in the room that need to hear today that they have value and worth. God, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit right now that we might be able um, to, to, to hear collectively that, yes, individually we're loved, but as a community we're here together today to model this type of, of belief that we hold an inherent dignity about us as people. Would we believe that today? And God, what that would mean as we walk out of here is that um, we can give freely that we could believe in this mutually self-giving love, the love that you modeled and the love that we get to give to other people. God, humble us, humble us so that we can love our neighbor as ourself. And thank you for modeling it by your death on the cross. Your death, we believe, is sufficient and holds us and rescues us. God, thank you for this good news gospel. Would you help us um, believe it in our heads over these few weeks, but also let it deeply sink into our hearts so that it may impact how we live in the world for the good of our city. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.